I know that all of you, I imagine, woke up this morning and you were getting ready for church and you were thinking, boy, I'd really love to learn about the Sadducees today, <laughs> right? What, what's the deal with those guys, right? Probably not, okay? So uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Sadducees because it, it is important for this story that we hear today in the gospel. But don't worry because there's actually not too much that we know about the Sadducees so I can't bore you for very long. In fact, maybe all that is really important to know about the Sadducees and who they were is actually right there in the gospel that we just heard. In fact, there's not a whole lot written about them otherwise. And right there at the very beginning, Luke tells us what the deal is with the Sadducees. They were one of a number of different uh, groups who had a particular way of practicing their Judaism. There were a whole bunch of different uh, groups, and, but what made the Sadducees distinctive was that they did not believe in the resurrection. And this was a contested thing in these, in these times among faithful Jews about whether or not there was a resurrection. The Pharisees, we hear a lot about the Pharisees, they often seem to be the bad guys in the gospel, but actually the Pharisees are very close to many of uh, the things that Jesus taught. And in this example, the Pharisees are probably cheering on Jesus. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. And so they set up a little trap in a question that they're going to ask Jesus to try to prove the resurrection false. Now, the, the other thing that we can figure out about the, the Sadducees is just in the way that they ask this question. So I'll give you the setup for why this question is important that they ask Jesus. It's kind of a riddle that they set up. And, but to understand the riddle, you have to know a little bit about how marriage worked in the ancient Near East and this time when Jesus lived and then following this law that came from Moses in the first five books of the Bible. So marriage in those days was quite different from how we think of marriage now. And uh, rightly, I think we think of marriage as this mutual commitment that two individuals make to one another. They fall in love and they decide to spend the rest of their years loving and caring for one another. That's not quite how marriage was seen in the ancient Near East. In fact, marriage was more of a political, economic, legal agreement that really joined two families that set those families up to kind of continue to prosper. It didn't have, uh, at least the impulse for it was not very uh, romantic or loving, although I'm sure there were very loving marriages that happened as a result. One of the things that was very important was that through marriage, a name continued. The man's name would continue down through the generations. And this was very important in the way that folks then kept track of families and names. And your family was everything. Your name was everything. But what happens if a man does not have children to carry on the name? That was the kind of crisis that they had to deal with. And so this solution was found, going all the way back to Moses, where if a man died childless, that man's brother would then take, it probably was somewhat simpler to take the, uh, that widow as his own wife and then raise up children with 
that uh, the man who died with his name so that the name would continue through the generations because that was what was most important. So knowing that, the Sadducees set up this little trap. They want to ask Jesus about a far-fetched situation in which that process happened where a man died without children, so his brother then uh, took on the widow into his own family, but then that man died childless, and so on and so forth. Seven times they set up this, this scenario so that each of these seven men has now been married to this woman, and then they say the woman dies, so in the resurrection, you can already tell where they're going with this maybe, right? If there's a resurrection, then whose wife will she be? They ask this because they want to trip Jesus up, kind of make it seem absurd, the resurrection. And really, what we need to know about the Sadducees comes from just the way that they ask this question, the way that they describe this scenario, which they're trying to make a kind of academic riddle out of this scenario. But if you have ever lost someone close to you to death, this is not an academic question. And if you have felt that pain, which can feel like a tear in the universe, right? That your very being is ripped apart when someone close to you dies, you will know that the way that the Sadducees ask this question is kind of heartless. They're thinking about it at an academic level, but the story they describe has seven brothers. That's seven sons. They were somebody's son, right? These are seven husbands, seven humans who all die untimely deaths. The Sadducees are really telling us about a tragedy, but they think of it almost gleefully to try to trap Jesus. Now contrast this with Jesus, who, though he does believe in the resurrection, when he heard of just one friend, Lazarus, Jesus publicly wept. But here the Sadducees are trying to trip up Jesus with this riddle. They're using these deaths as kind of a, a way to uh, make a case to solve the problem of resurrection. But really, resurrection and death is not like a problem that we can solve, is it? Many times it might feel completely unsolvable to us. I was walking down the long hallway in an assisted living building just this week, and I was walking down with the resident, but coming the other way up this long hallway was a woman who was stopping at the front of each door, and there's a little plaque there that has the names of the residents, and she was studying the names for a little while and then moving door to door, studying all the names. And so I was wondering, you know, is she maybe lost? Is she looking for someone's room? So I was a little surprised when we met and came face to face with her that the person I was with greeted her as a resident. She lives on that hallway. And she must have seen that I was a little bit puzzled about what she was doing because she immediately said to me, I have dementia. And she said, I 
forget the names of my neighbors. So she tries to memorize them. She goes from door to door memorizing their name. And the door where we met, she was looking at them and she was saying, Bill and Dolores, Bill and Dolores. And she was kind of pained. She said, I always forget Bill and Dolores. And so the person that I was with told her, you know, it's, it's just Dolores now. Bill died. And she said, although both names were still on the plaque, and she said, I know, but I still need to remember. Don't we all want that, right? We want to be remembered. We want our names to carry on. We want some piece of us, you know, a legacy to leave. And that is not, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we all want, I think, we want to be remembered. The problem that Jesus sees in this contest that's happening between him and the Sadducees is that without the resurrection, that remembering is really all that there is. The way the Sadducees have to look at it and the way they're asking the question, you kind of see that that's, that's what they think, that just being remembered, having for them, mostly it was having children to carry on your name. That was kind of immortality for their mindset, having children to carry on. Maybe having a name that is remembered. Maybe doing something very important. And we care about that, right? I mean, that's why there are wings and hospitals named after people. That's why there are schools named after Presidents, that's why we have many things, plaques, things that are gifts that are given in honor of someone. That's all important, right? You don't see a whole lot of anonymous gravestones, right? We want our names to be remembered. But the problem is if that's all that there is, you kind of have to organize your life in a way that you maximize, okay, I have to be remembered the best that I can. So maybe if I stockpile enough money, I can buy a big enough wing in a hospital or whatever. Or maybe if I make sure that I have children that will continue my name. So then your children, instead of becoming their own, you know, unique individuals, they're like an extension of you. I see that sometimes at the soccer field when I hear parents cheering for their kids and screaming at them, kick the ball, kick the, do this, do this. And I think they, they kind of think that it's them that out there on the field, right? We can do that. We can, if we start to think this way, other people become like extensions of us. They become tools for us to use instead of people for us to be connected to. The problem with this kind of thinking where we're trying to maximize our own life, maximize this life, Jesus says the problem is we're thinking only about this age. He contrasts these two things. He never defines it in this gospel, but he says this age and that age. This age being the temporary, the life that we have here, the surface level things, which are not necessarily bad, but they are just that, temporary and surface level. But Jesus says there is this age to come, that age. That's God's reign breaking into our lives. That's what the resurrection really is. 
If we only are concerned for this age, then we have to be anxious all the time about living as much as we can, hoarding as much as we can, because what else is there in this age? But Jesus talks about that age, the age that is to come, and how it changes, it transforms us in this age. If you look at this gospel, there's this remarkable phrase. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible. But Jesus talks about us as being children of the resurrection. Think about that phrase for a minute. Try to imagine children of the resurrection. What does it mean? First of all, Jesus is changing our relationship to one another, to God all this anxiety about having a family, having children to carry on your name. But Jesus says, we are the children. We're the children of God, and we are the children of the resurrection. This also means that we are resurrection people now. The resurrection is not something that just uh, an idea that you'd ascribe to, right? Check off on a box, or maybe it differentiates, you know, I'm this kind of person because I do believe in the resurrection and you're this person because you don't. The resurrection is not just something that you'd hope for at the end of your life. Maybe I'll see the resurrection at the end, right? And so we'll come back to it someday. We are children of the resurrection now, which means that our lives are transformed now by the resurrection. It's happening in us now. We don't look particularly different. We probably have the same accent that we had before we became resurrection people, children of the resurrection, but we see things differently. We still live in this age, as Jesus says, but we're forever changed because of the age that is to come, because of the age that is already breaking into our lives. That's what being children of the res resurrection does. It means we don't have to be so anxious about stockpiling stuff to preserve, to save our life in this age, because we know about that age already breaking in. It means we don't have to use other people like objects to help us get what we want or propel us further in life or make sure that our name rings out through history. We don't have to do that because we are children of the resurrection, transforming us now. It means that even though we live in this age and still experience that tearing, that hole that opens up in the universe when people close to us die, because we are children of the resurrection, we know that God goes through that hole with us, goes through that tear, and brings us to new life on the other side. God is a God of life, and we are children of the resurrection. Amen.